Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, Scott's back, first of all. I'm back. Where was I? Welcome back. We missed you. And as recall ballots hit the mail, campaign fundraiser Ludovic Blaine worries that despite a huge advantage in campaign cash, Governor Gavin Newsom's plan to defeat the recall is way too heavy on TV ads with no ground game to directly reach voters. That's right. And Ludovic Blaine is not a household name necessarily, but he heads up an important progressive fundraising operation called the California Donor Table. Their members include, by the way, some of the wealthiest Democrats in the state. And he's very worried that Newsom and the Democrats are facing a possible disaster on Election Day unless they get more boots on the ground. We're going to talk to him about all of that. Uh, and he's got turning out votes. It's all about turning out the votes. I feel like we've had this conversation before, maybe Georgia, Arizona, 2020. What do I know? But it's Elections 101. Yeah, well, we'll get, get your into- people out. Yeah, let's do that after the break. Uh, first. Yes. Are you, are you a teacher? Do you have a vaccine? Uh, I have a vaccine. I am not a teacher, but uh, Gavin Newsom this week uh, was in Oakland saying, look, if you're going to want to work in a school, in a public school in California, you got to be vaccinated. Teachers, staff, uh, and uh, clearly, uh, I think that's something that's going to make uh, parents, I would think, you're a parent, uh, more comfortable about sending their kids back to school. I know you got a little one starting kindergarten, kindergarten this week. next week. Very exciting. Um, and then, of course, we'll talk about some of the pushback uh, that he's getting from the Republicans running for governor. But, you know, this is this seems to be the trend. The president, Biden, he is pushing or encouraging this. We San Francisco today uh, announced they were going to do that. So this is this is where we're at. Right. And it is, of course, embroiled in insane culture wars. However, I think it's funny. So my first reaction was, wow, I'm surprised Newsom wants to double down on these kind of covid type mandate restrictions, whatever, as he faces this recall. And then I started thinking a little more and I was like, no, of course he does. Like his job right now, as we're going to talk about later, is to turn out the base. It's not to convince Republicans to come to his side. Um, and I think that, you know, for Newsom and, and we should I think say, to be too, fair, it's not a total mandate, yeah. too. It is saying you either do this Vax or you or are test. subjected to testing. Yeah. Um, San Francisco is going further than the state even with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think to be fair, we, we can't just say this is all politics. I mean, there obviously is a political aspect. And this is a political show. But, uh, you know, vaccines are working uh, and they're making a huge difference. Uh, We'll talk, in fact, about some of the states where they're behind on vaccinations, uh, Florida and Texas. But uh, we did see pushback right away from some of the candidates running for governor. In particular, Faulkner saying mandates are not the way to go. Uh, Cox took a step away from the bear and the Gavinopoly board to say that Newsom is just being power hungry, which I'm not sure what kind of power it gets you necessarily. Right. To have people right. I mean, I was so I was sort of thinking that the political 
answer would have been not doing this. I actually think you're right. I think it's more of a policy decision. And I think that that's also political because let's be clear. I mean, Newsom understands that as sort of the COVID pandemic goes in California, so goes his political fortunes to a certain extent. And then also, you know, I think that we have seen, I mean, let's just bring it up now, right? The Florida-Texas comparisons, the LA Times had a huge story this week. And it's not just about vaccines. I mean, masking is a huge part of why it is spreading, you know, like wildfire in other places and not as much here. And it's not to say it's not spreading here and that it isn't a problem, but we're not seeing our hospitals overrun. We're not seeing the same problems. And I think what Newsom absolutely is not going to go back to is like shutting down schools and a lot of the bigger restrictions. I mean, it's interesting, like San Francisco is basically saying this isn't just for public workers. This is like if you want to go to a gym or a restaurant, you're going to have to show your vac status. Yep. Um, and I'm uh, I, I think there's a lot of people that are OK with that. Here but, they are. <laughs> yeah, here they are. Right. Well, that's where it's happening. But, you know, you you, you did that big uh, report uh, with the folks in Florida looking at how, how DeSantis, the governor there versus Newsom, how they handled it differently. And it's just like a testimony to how how these things change, because the last update you did, it was kind of like, well, you know, maybe it was worse in Florida, but not like yeah. this much worse. And the economy right? was better and fewer people lost their jobs. It's a I mean, trade-off. Politico had a headline this spring that said how DeSantis won the pandemic. And I just... Too soon. Too soon. Yeah, Um, mission not accomplished. Right. I mean, to your point about being a parent, what I think about the most is like if I lived in a state like Florida where the governor's not, you know, it's not like he's saying, oh, we're not going to have a statewide mask mandate. He is actually preventing local school districts and governments from doing that. Um, How does that impact people? You know, like a a lot of the candidates for governor on the Republican side had really pushed back against this idea that we should have these school closures, you know, a year ago. Well, I I don't know. I'm just really interested to see how parents respond in a state. You know, in Texas, the school districts are just bucking the governor's order. Yeah. Well, and they're getting backed up by the judges, too. Yeah. And so I don't know. I just I think it's it's going to be fascinating. Obviously, it's too short of a time frame to really impact this recall, I think. But yeah, well, we're going to talk about that with our guests in a couple minutes. But, uh, you know, boy, it is interesting how the dynamics of, you know, every campaigns have they have that the momentum, you know, it's a roller coaster up and down. And typically, whoever's got the momentum at the end wins. But you do you do have the sense that right now, for whatever set of reasons, the governor's a little back on his heels a bit. And we're going to be talking about that Sackabee Ed board meeting. Wow. Yeah. So for those of you who may not have seen it, uh, he's been going around seeing uh, editorial boards. He was at the Sacramento Bee, I think, last week. Hopefully coming on political breakdown sometime. Shout out to the governor's team. Shout out to the gov. Uh, And he was clearly very angry, uh, I would say. You know, he was he was defensive, on Zoom, yeah. defensive, and I think angry. You look, they were looking in his eyes. He was not happy to be, you know, having to defend his record, which is, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think I can it's understand. <laughs> it is the job. You know, you've got to go to the voters. And I think, you know, some folks wonder, you know, is he does he going to is he going to get out in front of people because he's been doing press conferences and events that are very controlled. Um, but I think you know campaigns are also about the retail stuff. And yeah. he's going to have like the other all the other candidates are doing that. Of course, you know they have they they have to do that. But it's also a harder calculation for him because like you know Larry Elder is in San Jose today in front of a you know, an inside room full of people. And that is not the message Newsom is trying to send to people, right? So it does kind of bring up some of these challenges we saw in 2020, where, you know, Republicans were going door to door and Democrats weren't. And then some of those congressional races, it made a huge difference. And there's a big difference between going door to door and having a huge inside event, of course. But, you know, 
Yeah, exactly. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by one of the Democratic Party's top fundraisers in California, Ludovic Blaine. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're joined now by a guy who has helped raise millions and millions of dollars to help progressive causes and candidates in California. He heads up the California Donor Table, which has some of the wealthiest political donors in the state. Ludovic Blaine, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Great to be here. It's great to... I'm excited to be on. Uh, my 11-year-old son is excited to, for me to be really? on. Really? So, All right. Is, the, is he a public radio listener already? You know, yeah, sometimes <laughs> when, he has his opinions. His when dad is on, he is anyway. <laughs> right, right. So let's talk about the California donor table. Um, how did it come about? And, you know, how is it different from other PACs that, to help progressive causes? Sure. So the California donor table has been around about 15 years. It was started by a set of donors who, at the same time, they were starting national donor networks realized that they had a lot of similarities. Um, they were on the progressive end of a lot of donors, so not just any Democrat, but progressive Democrats. Uh, they centered racial equity and intersectionality, and they thought that actually by investing in progressive communities of color as the majority strategy, not as the minority outreach strategy, that they could build a more progressive California and have that be a model for how you build uh, progressive infrastructure and progressive electoral and policy outcomes in the rest of the country. These are some of the same donors that were the first givers to people like Stacey Abrams um, and many of the other now uh, progressive icons. Um, and while sure, people should be excited about Stacey when they meet her through Oprah, <laughs> this set of donors invested in her 10 years before that in pre-Oprah times. Um, and at the same time, we're investing in, in key work here in California. So, so that's how it that's how it got started. And 
And we invest heavily in Black, Latino, and API progressive communities up and down the state, um, both on the coastal sides and especially in inland California, yeah. where there's not a lot of gold. Yeah. And it, uh, Steve Phillips, who's, who's uh, one of your donors and organizers, actually, we talked to him about that spreadsheet Stacey Abrams had like over a decade ago, right, where she laid it out Long for ball. y'all. But one thing yeah. that really Long interests ball. me about the donor table is that you are focused on areas of the state that are not seen as Democratic hotbeds, right? I'm talking about San Bernardino County, Riverside County, San Joaquin County. Why those places and what inroads have you been able to make in terms of turning out progressive voters, especially those of color? Sure. So so I'd say um, uh, I'm from the Bronx uh, and, and ignored part of New York City. Um, and so hearing the stories of ignored parts of California really resonated with me. Uh, when we started, never mind the Central Valley and the Inland Empire, but Orange County and San Diego was solidly red places where people only had pity for Democrats and for people of color in general. Um, and we've been making investments there over more than a decade, identified the key leaders women of color, men of color, white folks who are willing, excited to work together, know how to do Stacey Abrams spreadsheets. Um, and in those places we've been investing in, now San Diego County has one of the most progressive board of supervisors in the state. Yeah, but not yeah, that long why, ago, they were all Republican. Yeah, that, it's surprising to go home there and see that. <laughs> all right, and well, so if, if you could imagine San Diego having a more left board of supervisors than Alameda County. Wow, um, that is, yeah, that's wild. People would, would say you don't know California. I'm but curious, when, when you say we made investments in places like San Diego, and let's talk about Orange County as well to the north, because that was a big win for Democrats in the midterms 2018. But what when you say investments, what does that mean? That means uh, over a period of 10 years every year, moving um, more than a million dollars of various kind of tax status money to invest in the groups that were most connected to the communities of color in those places, um, helping them build their capacity, helping them hire staff, helping them figure out how you do uh, broader organizing, voter engagement, helping them figure out policy outcomes um, in almost everywhere. Although we think that election laws are bad in other states. They're actually quite bad here in California and especially in those places. What do you um, mean by that? So for example, across California, you can win local races in the primary. And so actually your vote for mayor or board of supervisors or your water board is decided in the spring election. Far fewer people vote in the spring election than the fall election. So actually the right wing voter suppression bills that people are actually trying to, that Republicans are actually trying to or actually passing in Florida and Texas and other red states actually diminish the electorate less than our state law that allows candidates to win in the spring rather than the fall. Interesting. So so that's just one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Laws. yeah. yeah. So before we get into the recall, uh, you mentioned Orange County, Scott mentioned it, too. Huge pickups in 2018, flip four congressional seats. I mean, being from San Diego, like it's even crazier to see Democrats win in Orange County than in San Diego. But then three of those seats went back red in 2020. So when you look at that, given the work y'all are doing, like how, what are the lessons? What what needs to change? Is it just the dynamics of a different election? Sure. So, again, investing in Orange County for 10 years Um uh, in 2016, we would have taken the results of 2020. So in 2016, from 2016 to 2018, uh, they won three or four seats. Uh, and then in 2020, we lost three of the seats. So actually going back and forth, making Orange County contestable 
is a significant step forward. So frankly, if you told Democrats in 2010 that they would be in a position where they could lose three seats in Orange <laughs> County, that would be static. And, and that wasn't all the seats. They'd be like, oh, we're, we're still coming out ahead. And so they did. So He's a glass so half full kind of guy. We got Orange County to a place where the Democrats can win sometimes. They lose sometimes. Uh, really what happened was uh, in 2018, um, there were not only those congressional candidates, um, but there was a liberal to progressive uh, Vietnamese um, guy running countywide for sheriff. Hmm. And the sheriff and the DA in Orange County are terrible. And they think that about each other. So they're both right. But uh, he was running against the sheriff and he came really close. He actually, notwithstanding the law that I just said, he made it to the general election. Um, and he got, I think, 47, 48%. No Congress, no Democratic Congress people in Orange County are Asian or Pacific Islander. Um, so API voter turnout would be y'all really need to vote. Make sure you vote against every mm. single one of you running for Congress. Mm. That is not that inspiring. Yeah. Um, so by having people vote for that API sheriff candidate, who they actually deserve, that wasn't a political tactic or something. He actually, Orange County would be better off with him as sheriff. He was able to turn out API voters who had that reason to vote. And then they voted up ticket to vote for Democrats who were not API, some of them running against API. Yeah. That did not happen in 2020. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and our guest today is Ludovic Blaine. He's director of the California Donor Table. They raise big-time bucks to help elect Democrats and further progressive causes. We're talking with him about efforts to defeat the recall against Governor Gavin Newsom and other things. You know, one other big change in 2020, of course, in Orange County and everywhere was that Trump was back on the ballot. He wasn't in the midterms. Like, how... Like you're talking about the sheriff, you know, that was a big deal in helping to draw out API voters. But then, you know, how how big a deal was Trump and how much will his absence in 2022 matter down there, do you think? Uh, Well, Trump may not be on the ballot, but he seems to be on many Republicans' minds and hearts. And I don't know, it seems like they're getting Trump tattoos, et cetera. So um, so he he may be uh, not running right now, but he's not gone. so him not for 2022 for the congressionals, um, there's a lot of steps between now and then. The census just came out. The redistricting commission is going to set up districts. So we actually don't, and we're losing, California is losing one seat. So we actually don't know the composition of any of the districts right now while there are actually incumbents of their current districts. Um, nevertheless, there will be two or three contestable seats in Orange County and others in the Central Valley, LA, San Diego. Um, and we're going to need to learn the lessons that people that not just Biden learned, um, who didn't just run against Trump as the terrible person that Trump is, but Biden actually told people why they should vote for him, not just why they should vote against Trump by voting for him. Mm-hmm. And so that's necessary on the on years. He learned that in Georgia, the two Senate candidates learned that. Um, and that's what we've been implementing in the groups that we fund. That's how they do work is not just why you should vote for any Democrat or why any Republican is bad, although almost every Republican is actually bad, but not every Democrat is good enough. And so they push the Democrats to actually be responsive to the voters and then deserve those votes. So we're hoping that that happens in 2022. Um, it's hard to think of 2022 
Well, yeah, let's get into the recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about next month. So we mentioned, I mean, there seems to be a little bit of hair on fire when I, we both talk to folks behind the scenes involved in the Democratic Party, whether they be, you know, actually working for the governor or also labor folks, you know, people who want to see him keep this office. So it, I guess to start, do you think Newsom is making that case? Like, is he giving his base enough to to vote for, not just vote against? Because a lot of their messaging does seem to be what you're talking about, which is this is a Trump recall effort. You know, Republicans want to take over this blue state. Um, but that's not a positive message. No, I mean, I'm really saddened because this is a state where the leading donors of the strategies that do work in Georgia and elsewhere are here in California. Many of the groups here shipped out during the presidential to, to, to run that kind of reframed campaign. But the state operatives don't seem to have learned what much of the National Democrat, Democratic Party has learned. It really seems that Gavin is running more against Trump, and he is not, than Biden was running against Trump, even though Biden was actually running against Trump. Um, so um, so Gavin could have done many better things than what he did do, but he has done quite a few good things. He should be running on his record and running on what he's going to do to continue to improve things, as well as differentiating himself by attacking the actual terrible Republicans that are running. Because, so he is right when he's talking about them, but he's not talking about himself enough. Yeah. And, you know, as we've seen from the most recent uh, Berkeley IGS poll, the numbers have the big picture numbers among all voters. It hasn't really changed that much. 36% support the recall. But when you get to most likely to vote, that's where things get really dicey. And so that raises the question, how do you then expand the electorate? How do you mobilize Democrats and independents and anybody else who's inclined to vote against it, but who right now is kind of like eh, thinking about, you know, little league summer sports and vacations and, you know, getting their kids back to school. I mean, how do you focus them and get them motivated? Right. And so that that's field work. Um, and I mean, to be honest, my kid goes to school next week. I'm focused on figuring out what the right bike path is for him to get there exactly, and or carpool strategies. So that in addition to trying to Stop this recall. My other job is that. Um, so, um, so if anybody has any, any tips, let me know. <laughs> so Gavin needs to um, not just rely on TV and, and mass media. We need to have direct voter contact to tell people a few things. First of all, that voter packet that you're going to get in the mail, it's actually real. It's not junk mail. Even though it's a little bit weird because yeah. this is not an election year. And also, even if this was an election year, it's not election time. Nevertheless, that package you're getting is for voting. One, two, it's important. Three, here's how if you like Gavin, you vote no, which is a little. Yeah, it's like kind of like a referendum. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, if, so yes, you want to keep them is a no. Um, and then the why. So first, how's, how to vote with your intention. And then the why. Why should you vote to keep Gavin, not just against Larry Elder? Although Larry Elder has a million reasons zero of which minimum wage is one of them. Um, but Gavin has a lot of reason to vote for him. So, so first, it's the framing. Gavin needs to tell people why they should be voting to keep him, not just the scare tactic of who might replace him. And then second... Although there's overlap with those things. Although there's overlap, but he's just really talking about the latter. And then second is how we're communicating with voters, which is why we've um, dropped one and a half million dollars into people of color groups doing direct voter contact across the country. Uh, we understand Gavin's campaign, we think, is spending a couple of million dollars 
out of $60 million that they have, almost $60 million. And although it's hard to remember, the Georgia Senate races were this year. <laughs> people tell me that. I don't believe them. But it's the, it's the year after 2020, which some people say is this year, although obviously it's not. But those things happen this year. They won because of exactly what we're describing. They told people why to vote for them, and they funded direct voter contact to communicate that. And so Stacey Abrams understood that. Gavin and his campaign managers need to understand that pronto. Okay, so we'll pose those questions to them. But let me ask you, like, what are you doing? What are donors doing? What are grassroots? Because you fund the very groups that arguably the the governor's office and or the governor's campaign would have to be talking to as well. What we saw in Georgia is the power of that, right? To your point, it's not just TV ads. It's like going, you know, to Mrs. Smith's door and being like, hey, this is let's get you to the polls. So, I mean, not to put it all on you, but like, yeah, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> so like I said, we've raised from from mostly wealthy folks a million and a half dollars of various kind of tax status money directly to people of color run and serving voter engagement groups across the state. Central Va- so here in the Bay, Central Valley, Inland Empire, Orange County, San Diego, L.A. Um, and those folks are doing various things, digitally contacting people, texting them, phoning them, door knocking. We're obviously trying to make sure that we're all COVID safe. Uh, but doing all those kind of activities, both paid and volunteer, to talk to those voters to, again, remind them the information about voting, that there is an election, one, and then how, how, they, how you logistically vote, and then how you should think about your picking of yes or no. So, so that's what the groups are doing around the state right now. Ballots are dropping, ballots are being mailed out right now, and every registered voter is going to get a ballot. So some of these polls are a little bit weird because we actually haven't had a statewide candidate election under the law of everybody getting a mail-in ballot. Then we have all the fires where people are having to move hmm. from their school, where people are getting school packets. So, so we don't really know how many of those folks will even know that they're getting a mail-in ballot. Yeah, we're getting a little short on time. There's a couple more things we want to ask you about. One, of, I want to. I'm curious about this. You know, in 2003. Cruz Bustamante, the lieutenant governor, put he said, vote no on the recall, but then vote for me on the second part uh, as kind of a backup, an insurance plan to make sure we have a, a Democratic governor, even if Gray Davis is recalled. This time around, Democrats had a totally different strategy. Newsom and uh, his team made sure there were no interesting, prominent Democrats like, say, Antonio Villaraigosa as an alternative. Was that a mistake, do you think? In, in, is that going to make it less likely for Democrats to come out and vote? No, because I think if we had a viable alternative, that would increase the chances that many Democrats would then vote yes to recall, but not enough of them would aggregate on a single candidate to beat the Republicans that are running. So I don't think that that's uh, I don't think that that's a mistake. And if it was a mistake, it's not the largest mistake that or anywhere near the largest mistake that the campaign has or is making. Can I ask, like, what? conversations you or the groups you fund might be having with, say, the big statewide unions or the other sort of progressive grassroots groups that do a lot of this work? I mean, it, are people do you do? You, is it your sense that people are kind of working in, you know, a silo or are groups outside of the governor's campaign talking and doing this work together? Many of the groups that we fund are actually part of the governor's campaign and the governor's campaign is underfunding them to do field work. So we, it's not that we have a disagreement on the groups that should be involved. We have a disagreement on what percentage of a campaign budget should be spent on those activities. 
So them and the labor folks are working closely together. Yeah. So so what if you know what do Democrats do on that second part of the ballot though? I'm curious. Yeah. What are you advising them? Yeah. What do you tell them? Uh, at this point, I think they should leave it blank. There there isn't anybody on the ballot that I think deserves a Democratic vote. Um, and uh, and it's really we got to be all in to save Gavin's bacon because actually the residents of California are actually Gavin's bacon. It's us. Is that okay? But let me play devil's advocate. Does that then leave the door open to if the recall gets fifty plus one, having the most extreme, say, conservative candidate, uh, you know, in the governor's office for a year? I don't think there's a way now to um, support any of the Democrats that are running to get more than the leading Republican candidate. So I, I don't I don't think that 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 is that there's a viable way to do that. Right are now. people like buying that? Like are like when you have conversations with with people who have these questions about just the mechanics of this ballot, like do they does that confuse them? A little bit, although really what you do on the second question doesn't impact the first question. So as long as they vote no, people can do whatever they want on the second question. Yeah. Quick question. Uh, your name, Ludovic. Where did that come from? Come from. Uh, my dad and his dad were from Haiti. Uh, it's Ludovic, but I anglicize it to Ludovic. And oh. it's my son's name as well. Does it, does it mean something? It means uh, it... Audible victor, so praiseworthy winner. Oh, well, very relevant. <laughs> All right. We only have about a minute left, but um, what is it? What are you asking people who might hear this and say, I agree with him. Like, I don't want this recall to go forward. What do you think, you know, kind of average citizens need to do beyond obviously opening that ballot? Opening the ballot, putting it on your Facebook or whatever your social media is telling everybody to open the ballot, tell them to vote no, keep Gavin by voting no, uh, send your money to community-based groups. They can check out our website to find out the groups, californiadonortable.org slash recall. Um, and uh, make sure that as many of your friends as possible get vaccinated and uh, <laughs> that they vote. <laughs> All right. Ludwig Blaine, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. And we will be having as many as we can of the Republican candidates on in the weeks ahead. So stay we tuned Got for a couple more, of booked. more recall conversation. For now, our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Julia Chan. Otis Taylor and Erica Aguilar. I'm and Marisa players Lagos. to be named yeah, later. I was, I was like, did I say Ethan's name right? I'm Marisa <laughs> Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. Yes, you can. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can see what I'm up to on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. 
special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.